Welcome to the Women in Product podcast. I'm Elizabeth Ames. Over the next few months, we'll be sharing a special series on AI and product. In this series, we're going to take a deep dive into how AI is changing product management. We'll explore the exciting product opportunities and challenges that come with it. Join us as we chat with industry experts and uncover the latest trends, strategies, and innovations that'll keep you and your products one step ahead. This is the third episode in our series on AI, and we'll be talking with Polly Allen about breaking into AI product management. Polly is an AI product coach and advisor She's also the founder of AI Career Boost, an AI-focused career accelerator, helping more diverse leaders thrive in business roles for AI and machine learning projects. Prior to AI Career Boost, Polly was the principal product manager, technical, Alexa AI, web information at Amazon. Polly has a master's in computer science from the University of Victoria, and an MBA from the University of British Columbia. Rashmi Ramesh, who was the creator and host of our Path to CPO podcast series, will be interviewing Polly. She's a seasoned professional in product management and has held leadership roles across public companies and startups in the enterprise space, along with an MBA from Wharton. Our interview with Polly lasted for more than an hour and was packed with great information. In this episode, you'll hear the first half of the interview. I'll let Rashmi and Polly take it from here. Hey, Polly, so nice to have you and welcome to the Women in Product for the AI Product Management Podcast Series. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We would love to get a lot of your perspectives on, um, you know, the whole AI part of it will kind of peel different layers of it. And to begin with, um, would love to kind of understand from your perspective, you know, there's a lot of talks about AI product management, AI product manager and things, you know, according to you, is there something called like an AI PM? And I uh, would love to hear as to what additional qualities uh, would you think are really required to be that AI PM? Yeah, I completely think there is an emerging specialization in AI um, product management. We've seen over the last five to 10 years, kind of a specializations arising in product management that you've seen growth PMs, uh, go-to-market PMs. And it makes sense. The systems are becoming more complex. You know, you have special um, strengths and specializations you need in each area. So AI product management is really that specialization in developing and managing products that leverage AI technology. And of course, we're seeing a massive growth right now specific to um, especially, you know, supervised machine learning systems and in particular, large language models and and generative AI being a huge focus um, of new products being launched. But the biggest, biggest difference there is really that the software is based on patterns found on data. So software behavior is no longer based on computer instructions and rules. Um, so really that familiarity with data quality and, and being able to dive deep and understand that is, is one of the key um, areas that great AI PMs need to be able to, to dive into. I do think though, beyond just like technical you know, familiarity, a couple of the things I look for in people trying to get into AI PM are that they are um, data curious. So not necessarily have all the technical um, 
certifications, but that they're technically and data, uh, yeah, technically and data curious, I call it, in that they're willing to see, you know, they're wondering always, well, like, what would this work this way? Would, there, would this work that way? And really willing to get dive into the details. They need to really be quick and voracious learners, right? This industry has changed so quickly. Yeah. It can change on a dime. So that continuous learning really is something um, I've always been uh, passionate is a, is, a, is a huge piece of the role. And then that willingness to dive in and get, get dirty, not let themselves be intimidated by new technologies and find ways to try things out themselves. That's, I think, the best way to really become really well beloved of your engineering and data science teams that you can you can help them see around corners that way. That's, um, uh, thank you for that. I think um, it really has resonated with me when you said, you know, software that is focused more on the patterns versus, um, you know, the rules and computation that was always existing uh, prior to this. So love that, love the way you, um, you know, differentiated between the two. And um, just there's there's a lot to peel here, and we will do so uh, in the next few minutes. Um, at this point, I think um, you know we kind of want to assume, or I, I want to assume that pretty much every product person or every person has kind of played with um, you know hmm. the ChatGPTs or Claude or Bard or different uh, large language models and things. And given the number of resources that are there around, um, you know, across all different formats, you know, blogs and uh, YouTube videos and uh, whatnot, podcasts and things around this, um, could you kind of provide our audience with, you know, the different categories of topics that PMs need to be familiar with and the topics that they should really have a good understanding in order to build um, AI products. I know you touched upon um, being data curious, right? Curiosity mm -hmm. around that and being technical around that area. Um, would you kind of um, uh, elaborate on, you know, the other topics as well? For sure. For our audience? I see it as there are six different areas that I think are specific to AI PM success and skills that people can develop to be successful AI PMs. Of course, technical fluency is one of them. I do think it's one that people tend to over-index on, right? Um, mm -hmm. There are a lot of really great classes, um, free classes from Coursera, Andrew Ng's deeplearning.ai has a bunch. Um, and whether you are taking the ones that are meant for everyone and don't involve programming or starting to dabble a little bit into Python, you can go a long way with some of those free online courses and even build your own you know, classifiers and toy models, things like that. Um, that is a great start, but I think people tend to um, maybe do that too much or see that as too much of a barrier to getting mm -hmm. into AI product management. When um, my background was I came from a technical background and did come into AI product management that way. And I realized on the job at Alexa that I really, those weren't the skills that were really helping me succeed the most. So I think some of the other skills that are really key, um, the first one is strategy and vision, that ability to deliver um, you know, value by um, really pushing back when you see a lot of tech-driven requests. We're seeing that a lot in this industry right now, okay. right? Where there's a lot of just figure out how to use LLMs one way or another, but really understanding the AI capabilities and limitations and being able to map that to your company's strategy and vision. Um, that is such a key um, skill for PMs. It's particular to product management, right? And if you can uncover and prioritize those use cases, 
Um, it takes some education about the capabilities. It also takes clear eyes about your company's ability to take on any innovation required to get that last mile between what the underlying systems can do and what you really need to do to deliver value for your users. So that ability to um, take these capabilities and develop a strategy, a vision, a roadmap, that's absolutely a core capability. We touched on data fluency. That's the second one I would mention, um, where really that ability to dive into data files, see the patterns in the data yourself. There's nothing quite like getting deep in the data um, and understanding the provenance of the data, getting curious about how it was derived that will again, really help you see the issues that the data science team may not know if they don't have the same context you do on the user. Um, the biggest one I would say that is probably the, the biggest challenge for AIPMs is risk management, mm -hmm. risk and uncertainty. Um, and there's there's kind of three categories of risk, I would say. One of them is just what is good enough to launch, right? What What is even just setting the launch criteria can be really complex because we're dealing with systems that aren't always going to be deterministic, aren't always going to be um, correct the way rules-based systems are or fixable mm -hmm. very quickly if there is a bug, right? So we're deciding instead of, you know, how do we make it never be wrong? We're deciding like how wrong can it be well, and still have it deliver value, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's that risk of delivering the wrong thing. And then there's the risk of just of bad results because they're not deterministic. So those edge cases and deciding what kind of edge cases are acceptable, not acceptable? How are we going to handle those? And then thirdly, we have responsible AI, all of these ethical and legal considerations, um, understanding the biases and how they might affect our users, even just how it might affect brand perception. Mm -hmm. um, at Alexa, for example, we were worried, of course, about um, answers that were biased against any particular um, minority or group, but we are also really worried about brand risk around any answers suggesting that Alexa is listening to you when she's not listening to you, or that we're suggesting that Alexa prefers one brand over another, you know, without any real reason to say why she would prefer that brand. Um, so there's a, there's a whole host of risks you're not dealing with in traditional software systems and managing those before, during, and after a project is launched as, as really key. So that's, that's three out of the five I said, I said six total and one's technical, uh, but the last two are I guess, a little simpler. So that idea of communication is absolutely key. Com um, communicating complex concepts uh, between leadership who understand business metrics and data science teams who are working really with really technical metrics, being able to build those models, both mental models and just how we communicate um, that explain the progress you know, and explain the pitfalls between the different teams. Um, that's absolutely the role of the product manager and kind of the glue, keeping everyone on the same page. And then finally, bringing in the engineering and the machine learning operations side of the house. Yeah. Um, engineering has a huge role here to support, you know, the development, deployment, measurement, maintenance of AI systems. And that's something that people are often blindsided to if they've been focusing on data science courses, and now they understand how to build a model, there's that whole side of great, but how do we get it to run at scale, reliably measured mm -hmm. over time, make sure the performance doesn't drift, right? So there's a lot of considerations that go way beyond just those 
technical understanding. That, that's very well said. Agreed that, yeah, other than just the technical understanding, there's so much of the infrastructure part of it that um, sometimes you fail, you you overlook um, or you, you simplify that uh, where, you know, that could be a big uh, barrier, basically. Um, yeah, lots of things to unpack here again. So if you are, um, let's say, a product leader, a product management uh, leader across, you know, be it B2B or B2C, what aspects can you actually use um, from your core product management, from your building products, be it zero to one or zero to one to scale, that you could actually show that you have the necessary AIPM skills? Um, I know you mentioned about um, the strategy and vision and the communication, um, which is core, irrespective of you know you being an AIPM or not. Uh, but how can someone demonstrate that um, uh, from your perspective, Polly? Yeah. I think the key thing to remember is just like you just touched on Rashmi, that what AI needs right now in their product managers is great product skills first, right? Mm. And that the AI skills are like this additional layer to bring in. That's an additional layer of complexity, but at its core, your role is still delivering customer and business value. Right. And I think sometimes that gets, that gets lost, especially when I see, uh, managers hiring and insisting on like that their PMs need a computer science degree. Um, I often think that they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot, right? You should be looking for, do you know how to create impact business value? Um, what kind of impact have you had? Never fail to highlight that front and center, even when you're looking for AI roles, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, I think some of the areas, I mean, it really depends if you are, have some AI projects to lean on already. But um, what I look for is anywhere that you've done a lot of like data-driven decision-making, right? Mm-hmm. Examples of have you had a hard time measuring something and needed to derive a proxy measure for that? Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of um, what kind of limitations do proxy measurements and metrics have? How did you communicate that, right? So you're showcasing both that data-driven data curiosity, as well as that ability to communicate about it in a really sophisticated way. Um, that's a, those are, You can get some really great examples of that without necessarily having worked in, in AI before. Um, cross-functional leadership is another one, right? Um, if you're doing cross-functional leadership already, often in AI projects, you have some additional teams. You'll have an engineering team and a data science team mm-hmm. to deal with instead of just software engineering. Nice. You may have um, to have a closer relationship with uh, legal stakeholders or marketing about the messaging about this, right? So um, I look for people who can showcase they've done complicated cross-functional leadership and are ready if you throw a couple extra stakeholders at them, a couple extra people mm-hmm. in the mix, right? Mm-hmm. Any show of real problem solving um, and continuous learning that's you know been put yeah. into practice with your teams, I think that's that's really huge too. That's awesome. And added to that, um, that's a really great example. I think you gave across the data driven decisions and how you could um, possibly show the core correlation. Um, and when you talked about risk management, right? So um, especially, um, which is key within the AI product management, what kind of examples can someone provide um, when they have been working on non AI based uh, products? Uh, what any any examples that you can think of uh, to translate uh, between the two? Yeah, I often ask candidates like, "What is? Tell me about a time where you faced the most ambiguity 
on a project mm-hmm. about, you know, about launch criteria um, and, or even whether it's about launch criteria or an approach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so often you, you may have dealt with innovation projects where the actual, um, you know, will this be built on a particular timeline isn't certain. Mm-hmm. It may take investigation of multiple approaches generally that's a lot of what you'll see on AI projects, right? Where Mm -hmm. you'll have the data science team, you know that you need to get to a particular accuracy or a particular engagement metric. um, And you'll be asking them to iterate on a bunch of different approaches, right? Uh, And you won't know how long should we try this approach before we say, okay, this isn't working, let's try a different approach. So it doesn't necessarily have to be AI if you've had to deal with that kind of innovation before mm-hmm. um, and de- dealing with that kind of ambiguity. That's that's an amazing example. Um, I'm sure a lot of people would appreciate, especially when we're trying to translate, um, you know, your uh, qualities between the two and the skill sets between the two. Um, so what kind of avenues do you think or ways that one can use to kind of showcase, um, um, you know, that they have some of the AI-related skills. I know you talked about being a continuous learner and look for some of the courses that, you know, people can add mm-hmm. um, from a technical standpoint, but are there any other avenues that you've seen around or you've t- tabbed with um, uh, to showcase uh, from that perspective? Yeah, so there's showcasing it. Um, whether it's on LinkedIn or your resume, um, if you don't necessarily have the title of like AI PM or this mm-hmm. was an AI project, you know, pro- AI company and where I was the PM, um, one thing I've seen work well is a more functional resume format where you're highlighting like, hey, here's the different AI skills where I've dealt with ambiguity, where I've mm-hmm. communicated complex um, concepts, where I've had to come up to speed new on a new technology quickly. Um, and I think that really helps people understand, you know, how you could operate in that way. Uh, in LinkedIn too, the summary section is a great place to dive into, um, hey, what is your journey related to AI? Is this something mm-hmm. where a lot of folks have been very interested in AI um, before ChatGPT and are familiar with AI from before, before then, which is actually a really, you know, an important distinction to make. Um, so I think you can you can really tell the, the the story there of your passion and the things that's driven you to. Um, one thing I see a lot of people doing, and I, I think it's um, a, a mixed uh, a mixed approach as, as far as how successful it is, um, doing having projects to highlight. Right. So mm-hmm. if you you've worked through a course on Coursera, Deep Learning AI, um, and you've created you know a classifier, you know how to tune a model, right? Um, having done it once or twice is nice. In general, those are like data science team skills, right? And it's mm-hmm. it's great to show that you have that common language mm-hmm. um, and we'll be able to communicate with them. What I like to see from the PM side is taking that a one step further and say, can you take that project and demonstrate PM skills? Can mm-hmm. you think about how you would evaluate whether this is something you would launch? Can you get it in front of users and actually get their feedback, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those kinds of considerations are the ones that are going to, I think, set you apart if you do decide to pursue a portfolio project or something. Um, you can now, with generative AI, do a lot more on your own without a data science or development team to at least get prototypes out and in front of users and collecting metrics and data. 
And I think that's what I really like to see is like a data-driven approach to say evaluation of a project that also really closely ties it to users and user value. Um, something like that will stand out a lot more than a simple class capstone project where you, you where you were able to demonstrate you know the the technical skills of building a model. That that's uh, that's awesome. I'm sure you'll now, apart from teaching um, your course that you're very passionate about, I'm sure you'll have a lot of people. Uh, knocking on your doors for resume and LinkedIn um, a tips. I think that was that was a really great tip. Uh, oh, great! I should do a session on that. That's uh, thanks for the, <laughs> thanks for the idea. Yeah, uh, that, uh, absolutely. Because a lot of times it's a two part thing, right? So one is you actually have worked on some of the skills, and the other part is actually showcasing that you do have those skills. Um, right. So that was a that was a really great uh, tip. And um, in all of this, what do you think is the most difficult aspect of being an AI PM? I know you touched upon risk management as one of the key aspects, uh, which is very different from, you know, your regular uh, PMs, um, especially given AI. But uh, is there anything else you want to add there? Yeah, I think it is um, specifically managing all the uncertainty along with, you know, these emerging technologies, there is often a lot of fear and perceived risk that can come out of the woodwork during a project. So managing, you know, the the perceived emerging risks from different stakeholder groups all along. Um, I can give a I can give an example. So when we were working on Alexa, working on um, generative generative AI answer, we were trying to summarize news content for our users. So when you're listening to words, we listen very differently than we read, right? And mm-hmm we write very differently for news radio than we would for, for written stories online because of that. You can't backtrack with your eyes, et cetera. So very different considerations in the language that you use. So we were trying to take written news and summarize it for short audio announcements on, on Alexa about different, about different news that was emerging. And of course we were suffering from the same problems LLMs are seeing today with hallucinations where a certain mm-hmm. percentage of our news our articles were completely wrong. And we were trying to decide like what is the percentage that's acceptable for us to launch this as you know a feature on Alexa, where it's like a high trust environment, we don't want to lose the user's trust. Does it really have to be 100% correct? Mm-hmm. Um, when you start, is it okay if it gets the sports score wrong by one point? Um, and we correct it within two hours, right? Um, and so finding that line of exactly, you know, how correct does this have to be? Even that process of how we make those kinds of decisions, a lot of organizations are new to even thinking about this a way or another. They're like, well, 100% right all the time, of course. Um, that often can't be the bar if you want to get some of these innovative features actually out in front of users. I think a lot of organizations are showing that they're willing to take a lot more risk with the success of ChatGPT and the adoption right. of it. Um, and so trying to get all these stakeholders on the same page of like, how much risk is too much risk? We're not going to take zero risk. <laughs> right. Um, and, and uh, you know, how are we going to mitigate these different ones? Mm-hmm. Along with someone comes to you halfway through the project and in the middle of the night, they had a dream and this horrible thing might happen that they hadn't thought of. And how are we managing, you know, these existential risks, Um and making sure that they don't arise too. Um, I think it's it can be uh, that can be one of the hardest pieces, kind of keeping a project mm-hmm. on track through all of those anticipated and unanticipated risks. 
Yeah, no, that's that's a really insightful. I think you brought up a good point, which leads to my next question. Um, you know, between working at startups versus working at big companies, um, you know, uh, who are on the frontier, give it, give it Amazon or Google or Microsoft, um, for that matter. Um, what do you think is the difference in the preparation or difference in, um, uh, or is there a difference? Um, for an AI PM who would work in a startup versus a big tech with some of the aspects that you called out, um, which are critical for an AI PM? Yeah, I would make a bigger distinction between whether you're looking at a PM role where you're building something consumer facing, whether it's B2B or B2C, something where um, you're just looking to leverage existing models and capabilities. Mm. And a lot of startups, that's generally what they're doing, right? They might be using, doing some, some fine tuning. They might mm-hmm. do, be doing um, some engineering, you know, creating in, mostly engineering systems that interact with these models. Mm-hmm. But generally, they're not um, doing a lot of like first principles, building foundation models from scratch. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and that's very different from if you're doing more deep tech mm. Um, AI PM roles where, and those often you'll find your, in those roles, your customers are developers or data scientists, a more technical customer, mm-hmm. right? right? So it's tough because um, you asked about startups versus, you know, larger like, fang type companies. And I'd hate to generalize, this isn't always true, but largely a lot of the startups are that first one where they're looking more to leverage the technology. Right. Right. Whereas a lot of the larger companies are are building more platforms and mm. things that are a little more deep tech. Right. Not always the case. You may definitely find, you know, sure. more consumer right. facing at big companies and there are deep tech startups. Um, so I think in the first case uh, where you're leveraging AI capabilities, keeping on top of what are the capabilities, what are the ways that um, there's more and more strategic engineering approaches to mitigate those capabilities, um, what are the the legal and uh, responsible AI risks that we are taking on versus the platforms are taking on? For example, Microsoft and OpenAI have said that they'll take on copyright issue risks mm-hmm. if you use their platform, right? So right. keeping uh, you know close tabs on what is what the industry announcements are and how to um, do a lot of experimentation between weighing the pros and cons of different platforms, right, is more important for those kinds of roles. Whereas for deep tech, I hate to call them more technical um, because I hate, I really don't like that this trend we're seeing of requiring computer science degrees for this role all over the place, right? Um, but I would say that uh, if I'm hiring for that kind of role, I want to see a PM who does have deep empathy, deep understanding of Mm -hmm. data scientists or engineering, you know, users, Mm -hmm. right. That's going to be very hard for you to convince me if you've never worked really tightly with data scientists and engineers alongside of them, right. At least, right. And very, really understanding well, their process, their concerns, what keeps them up at night. (laughs) Um, So that's where just that like familiarity with those teams um, and what they're doing just a little bit deeper is important. Um, and then it's, again, it's less about understanding that broader industry, who are all the players, what are my different options to leverage and more understanding, Hey, what is our key advantage compared to, you know, what else is out there? What, what mode are we building, right. um, to be able to, uh, to really, uh, accelerate, you know, the value we can create 
that helps the messaging as well as helping give the the tech team the guidance they need for understanding where to focus. That's that's amazingly insightful. I think you very clearly called out the distinction um, a distinction there at the at the uh, at the one level um, higher as such. And any frameworks or tools that you could share uh, for you know a person to be a more successful AI product manager or a product leader per se. I know a lot of times product management just becomes frameworks. Um, hopefully, there's something that's very near and dear to you that is really helpful versus just uh, you know yet another framework uh, kind of mm-hmm. scenario. <laughs> totally. Um, so, from the strategy perspective, I'd love to share a book. Um, there's a book by Kai Fu Lee, formerly head of Google China. Um, it's called um, AI Superpowers, mm. and that book, even though it's from 2017, oldie but a goodie. Um, it is much more big picture, but if you're trying to do kind of strategy and thinking about how do I build moats in this scenario, it does a great job of both giving a, a nice uh, business facing intro to um, deep learning, machine learning, as well as uh, calling out the dis- difference between how Silicon Valley approaches innovation versus the approach in China. And I do think we'll we'll see a lot of things um, pivoting towards more of the China approach because we can't, we can no longer make this a distinction just purely on technology for a lot of startups, right? We've got a lot of AI ML startups where the distinction isn't, isn't tech. We're all just using um, some underlying tech. You may have a technical tech, you know, technological value add that you've developed but a lot of the time, the value adds are going to be things like um, developing a specialized access to a market or vertical integrations with, with businesses that interact you know, non-digitally mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, so I loved that book because it called out that in China, the startup ecosystem has been so competitive for so long, they'd had to move away from these like mm. technical or usability advantages and had to go that route. So it's really inspiring to read that from a perspective of thinking about what are the what are the more human ways I could build an advantage right. as well as approaching this from the technical side. So it's not a framework, but I do love this book. And then I do have a framework to share because you've always got a, it's a, it's a product you know, <laughs> podcast, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, one of my favorites, it comes from a book called uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. It's available on Amazon. Um, and she was a data scientist for years and calls up uh, calls out a bunch of different scenarios or und- unintended effects um, on biases and systems that were developed specifically to have like, let's get all those biased humans out of out of this, the decision making loop and leave it to systems, right? Mm. Um, but at the end of the book, she has a great framework um, for risk management around um, identifying all your stakeholders. So like mm. a stakeholder assessment and really looking broadly at like not just different user groups you want to make sure are protected, but the developers of the system, the data annotators who are providing um, if evaluation data back to you about how well your model is performing, uh, the climate and society at large, democracy, like each of these things. Are, is there possible positive effects? Are there possible negative effects? And from that, you can build your first risk register. So I like just having a spreadsheet where I'm tracking, hey, we identified all of these risks. We did that exercise. We're going to manage the top 
the top ones that come above a certain bar, right? You can't necessarily um, manage everything that anyone could dream up might happen right. <laughs> on a bad day, right? Um, and the, the process around having an open risk register um, that continually is updated and, and viewed so that stakeholders can keep an eye on, hey, where are we with this risk? Am I the first one to come up with this risk I had in the middle of the night last night? Um, and, uh, and, and it just gives the team a lot of confidence that yes. there's, um, there's a place to be heard if they do have risks that are coming up. You have a lot of transparency on how they're being handled. Um, so that idea of a risk register is really um, one of my favorite things to use. Thank you for that. I think, yeah, those two books will be next on my cart um, uh, for, the, for the reading. As mentioned in our intro, this is the first of two episodes sharing our entire interview with Polly Allen. Please join us for the remainder of the interview in our next episode. Thank you for listening. And thanks also to our partner Discover, who provides annual support for the work of Women in Product. And thank you to our community. This podcast is an original production of Women in Product. Follow us on Apple Podcast and leave us a review so that others can discover us. Android users, find us on Spotify or share this episode with others who you think would find it interesting.